Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's September 2020, and there doesn't seem to be a day in which social media is not only in the headlines, but the platform for those headlines. Uh, This week, it's all about how Facebook is promising not to offer any advertising a week before the election. And they're taking down all sorts of videos of Trump, which is, of course, inevitably controversial. Um, We've had a lot of conversation about this show, about how social media is disrupting 2020, disrupting our politics, our economics, and our health. And now we have a whole book on this by the distinguished uh, MIT entrepreneur and networker, uh, Sinan Aral. He has a new book out called The Hype machine. Uh, Sinan, uh, what is a hype machine? So the hype machine is essentially my word for the social media industrial complex, which includes all of the platforms uh, on which we're obviously getting so much of our news and social connection and life-saving medical information, but also genocidal propaganda, misinformation, disinformation, election meddling, uh, interference in our privacy. And really, the book is a culmination of, for me, 20 years of research and four years of writing. Uh, I've been studying this stuff uh, since the year 2000, when I began my PhD at MIT. And I've done very large-scale studies with Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Snapchat, WeChat. And I sort of Uh, look under the hood of this social media industrial complex, how it works and what we can do to fix it. Sina, now, I'm not blaming you personally for this, but I'm going to include you in a a collective critique of of what we might think of as MIT. You talk about the social media industrial complex. I would call it the the digital media promotion complex. Um, The zeitgeist has shifted. If you were writing this book 15 years ago, you would be arguing, not you personally, but many people at MIT and Silicon Valley would be arguing that social media is the democratizer. Social media is the thing that is going to enrich our economy and our health. What's happened over the last 15 years to change all of our minds on this? Well, it's funny. Uh, I don't see this book as taking either of those positions. In fact, what I see when I look backwards from September 2020 into the recent history and the maybe longer term history is a series of books that were techno-utopian in nature, uh, which is exactly the series of books that you are describing. And then followed by a series of books that were clearly techno-dystopian. And there I'm thinking of Roger McNamee's Zucked, I'm thinking of Nick uh, Bostrom's Superintelligence, I'm thinking of, you know, uh, Elon Musk even waxing poetic on Twitter about how AI is going to destroy humanity. 
And really what this book does is to try and take a much more balanced view and describe the fact that technology is itself uh, neutral. It's how we use technology that determines our outcomes. There's promise here, there's peril here, obviously. The question is, what can we do? It really tries to get concrete about what we can do, which I think is something that you won't find much of in either the techno-utopian or the techno-dystopian books. So what can we do, uh, CNN? What, 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 what is the, the fix to this? Because we can't shut Facebook or Twitter or TikTok down, but we can shape them to our own interests. What are, what are the most important things that uh, can be done to, 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 to control, to manage, to civilize the hype machine? Well, I think the way you just framed it is incredibly eloquent. It's about shaping rather than shutting. I think that a lot of the uh, you know, proposals today, when you think of politically convenient slogans like breaking up big tech or hype, uh, without a lot of detail, without a lot of real solutions behind them. What I describe in the book uh, is that there are four levers that we have to really shape, as you say, this technology towards the promise and away from the peril. And those levers are what I call money, code, norms, and laws. Money being the incentives created by the business models of this economy, norms being what we think of as legitimate uses of the technology, code, which is the engineering and software design that goes into the platforms and the algorithms, and of course the laws which regulate the market failures that we know exist, whether they're in terms of privacy or they're in terms of the debate between free speech and hate speech or other types of negative externalities we see in society. Uh, this sounds convincing in a way, but it's also giving me a little bit of a headache. It sounds like a PowerPoint. You've got these four big points. Where do we start concretely, Sinan? Let's, let's, uh, let's leave the big concepts and focus on doable things over the next year or two. Well, let me work backwards from where do we start? I don't think we start uh, with what do we do over the next year or two. I think we start with what motivated me to write this book, which is that forget PowerPoints. I have a seven-year-old son who may or may not be on social media for his entire life and not know anything about a world that doesn't have social media. So what does social media do to his brain? Uh, I begin this book with the first principles of the neuroscience of social media, the economics of social media, to really describe how it works on our brains, how it works in a marketplace, why it functions the way it does, and to really get under the hood. The solutions of what we do in the next 12 months come from an understanding of how it works under the hood and how we think about our kids on social media and how we think about the economics of the marketplace. Now, what we do in the next 12 months is detailed in the very last chapter. Uh, and I do think, for instance, the next 18 to 24 months are critical. I think we're at a crossroads, and I think that the choices we make now are going to be essential. So first, let me lay out sort of the areas in which we need to do things. The first and entry ticket is what I talk about as competition. So I believe that what we have in the social media industrial complex is a significant lack of say in the matter because we can't hold their feet to the fire of competition and say, well, if you don't provide me a good experience that doesn't destroy my life, I'm just gonna go down the road. 
So if we don't have that outside option, it's hard to incentivize them to create societal values rather than profit-based values. And the question then becomes, how do you create competition? And the moniker of the day is break up Facebook. Um, if you look back to chapter five of the, paper, of the uh, book that talks about the economics, you'll realize that this market is what economists call tippy. It tips towards monopolies because of the structure of the market that's based on local network effects. And the way we solve that is not by breaking up any single company. So without even taking a position on whether or not we should break up Facebook, you can already begin to conceive of breaking up any given monopoly in this space as really like putting a Band-Aid on a tumor. And the reason for that is because if you break up one company in a market that tips towards monopolies, the next company will just tip into a monopoly in its place. What we need is a structural reform of the economy that guarantees social network portability, data portability, and interoperability at scale. And that is very analogous to the cell phone market where we regulated the ability for consumers to take their numbers with them from one cell phone provider to another and for those providers to have to guarantee interoperability of their networks, which created a tremendous amount of competition in that marketplace. On top of the notion of competition, we have a series of market failures that we have to think about. Privacy, election manipulation and election integrity, uh, the line between free speech and hate speech and several others. And I go into detail about what we need to do in each of those realms as well. In a funny way, listening to what you're arguing, it, it might seem as if it would be better to keep the monopolies because they're e easier to uh, regulate. Well, it's funny you say that because I think one of the worst of all worlds could be no structural reform to the economy that guarantees interoperability, data portability, and social network portability, but you break up Facebook into 15 smaller companies. What does that do? Well, first of all, it destroys the network effect that creates a tremendous amount of consumer welfare because now you're breaking the network ties between individuals from which they generate value, and you're forcing yourself to regulate 15 companies instead of one. I think the right way to do this, whether you break up Facebook or not, is to ensure interoperability and data portability, and then really try to focus on the negative externalities afterwards. I get this about the, the data portability, and I've heard this before. And I understand that sophisticated technologists like you would probably take advantage of it. But for the average social media user, the person who's on Facebook, maybe not even Twitter, who networks with their friends, who believes everything they read on there, the old lady perhaps, or the young lady, how, have, how is data portability going to affect them? And, and, and why would they even take advantage of it? Most people don't have the time to start fiddling around with the settings and the applications on, on their networks. I couldn't agree more. And in my view, it should be as simple as calling your friend on another network at her number without even knowing which network you're calling. So when you make a phone call from Judy to Jim, uh, you don't say, oh, well, am I on Sprint and am I calling Verizon? No, you just call their number and voila, you're connected and you're having your conversation. That is an example of interoperability between two network providers 
with number portability where if I switch from Verizon to Sprint, Judy will know that my number is the same. No settings, no need to really think about uh, anything going on under the hood. That's all the responsibility of the infrastructure providers to abide by the interoperability legislation that would guarantee this type of competition. Who owns this infrastructure, Sinan? Is it, um, is it a state initiative or would there be new private companies building the architecture of this, I I I the, of this inoperable social media world? Well, in essence, right now, it's owned by the social media platforms. It's Facebook, it's Twitter, it's Instagram, and WeChat, Snapchat, LinkedIn, and so on. The way that this works for network operators is that they're forced to make their switches available to other providers uh, at a zero-rated cost in order to allow that kind of interoperability to work. I think that one of the things that's required for interoperability in this case is that it requires a tremendous amount of data processing capability in order to make these types of large-scale social networks work. So I do think that there will need to be analogous requirements for uh, data processing like switches to be made available uh, in order to ensure that kind of interoperability. See, now, and I, get, I get this idea and I, and I think it's an attractive one. Uh, but even if Judy and Jim can communicate between platforms and it's as seamless as a, as a cell phone operation. We're still going to have fake news. We're still going to have an addictive uh, social media that's negatively affecting our health. We're still going to have social media that in many ways undermines the economy. So what comes after uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the reform, the fundamental reform of the architecture of the system? Well, the, the, the thing about silver bullets is they're usually snake oil. So if I was to tell you that there's one solution to this problem, I'd be lying. What I'm arguing is that on, a, on top of a layer of competition, the thing that competition does is it allows the consumer to say, if you're going to provide me with a social network experience where I'm deluged by uh, misinformation and hate speech, I'm just going to go down the road that option will force the social networks to provide things that they're not currently incentivized to provide, like cleaning up their information ecosystems. But that's not sufficient. There needs to be more. So for each one of those harms, I go to it in detail. So take fake news, for example. There are a number of different things that we need to uh, do to solve the fake news crisis, and they're based on science. So we know, for instance, that when we go to buy food to consume, it's extensively labeled. We go to the grocery store, we know how many calories it has, how many trans fats, if it's produced in a facility that produces wheat and peanuts if you have an allergy. But we don't have any of the same labels for the information that we consume. But those types of uh, labels combined with nudges to be reflective could help us think clearly about what information to believe and what information to share and those types of solutions would be provided by platforms that are incentivized to compete with their competitors to provide a better experience for the user. In addition, we have to be very nuanced because for instance, as soon as you start labeling uh, fake news, you run into what's known as the implied truth effect, which is that everything that you don't label is assumed to be true, which may, it may not be. You also start to decrease the general confidence in news overall 
when you start labeling something as, as true as, and some things as fake. So these types of solutions require nuanced, non-silver uh, bullet type uh, solutions, but they begin with competition. And then we could talk about privacy as well. Obviously. Yeah, I mean, I get your point on fast food, but uh, one could counter that the, the, the more information about calories and, 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 the, and the healthiness of food we see on our, on our, on our, on our produce, the, the bigger the, the, the obesity crisis becomes in America. So are we in danger if we label social media of creating or compounding the digital divide between a, a highly sophisticated digital aristocracy and a, and a mob which sinks more and more into the morass of the hype machine? Yes and no. And the no part of it, the yes part of it, you've uh, argued very well. The no part of it is that the 80-20 rule applies to social media, which is that just a little bit of reflection goes a long way. And let me give you an example. Frequently, when I see sh uh, fake news shared, it's shared with a preamble that says, I don't know if this is true, but it's really interesting if it is. Just stop doing that. You know, just stop doing that. And the way you stop doing that is just a moment's reflection and a Google search, which can debunk 80% of the salacious fake news in one click. Now, we have seen in experimental evidence that just a small nudge to be reflective helps people discern truth from falsity and helps reduce the spread of false news online. CNN, uh, as you say, you, you lay out the fixes in a, in, a, in, a, in a very detailed and erudite way. Uh, but as I said, the subtitle of The Hype Machine is how social media disrupts our elections, our economy, and our health. What happens if we don't address this? What happens if we, we just, we just uh, skate over it? It's too complicated. It requires too much work. And the politics are just impossible in, in our age of, of, of Trump. Uh, what happens if the hype machine compounds itself over the next five or 10 years. Are we screwed, to put well, it politely? I mean, well, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And you conveniently left off the end of the subtitle for-, uh, for And how we reason. must adapt. Right, I, so, I understand we must adapt. But what right. happens if we don't? That is, that is exactly my point, is that we must adapt because the current path of social media is incredibly destructive, which is your point. I mean, the democracies around the world, elections, uh, coronavirus misinformation, uh, impacts on markets and businesses are incredibly potentially disrupt disruptive and destructive. And I go through each one of these in great detail. So I yeah, no, there, there's no debate on that. I accept that and I agree with you. Uh, but I'm giving you an opportunity to offer a dystopian warning to people who are still not convinced. Imagine I mean, a world where none of this is changed, where the hype machine continues yeah. to, 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 to rampantly essentially destroy our, our politics, our democracy, our economics, and our personal health. What does the world look like in 20 years? You know, you know what really scares me, Andrew, is that if you want to know the negative, destructive potential, uh, you don't need to look 20 years out. All you have to do is turn on your television. I mean, the last two weeks in the United States have been earth-shatteringly destructive 
in terms of people being shot in the streets, one uh, group against another, inflamed and enraged, armed civilians, two political parties at each other's throats, complete uncertainty as to where we're going. You don't need to look 20 years out. We're living it now. And in fact, we're going to continue to live it until we take hold of our society and really rein in this notion of extremes being essentially pushed by algorithms in ways that many of us don't understand. Should Joe Biden be pushing this more aggressively? Maybe not your book, but the fundamental reform, uh, the left or progressives or even centrists seem to blame everything on Trump and on the Republican Party. But you're suggesting it's more structural than that. I mean, you know, I, I am in a lot of ways, I mean, I'm an independent. So I find myself a lot of times uh, arguing for things like free speech, for things like uh, let the marketplace do its thing, but regulate market failures. So I wouldn't consider myself a leftist progressive per se, although I think that uh, the, the left has a lot of opinions on this particular topic, which may be uh, helpful. I definitely think Joe Biden should read my book, uh, but I think what we need is a much more inclusive national commission in the United States uh, along the lines of the Warren Commission or other successful commissions that looks at the role of technology and democracy in society, includes scientists, industry leaders, representatives of groups like the ACLU or other types of groups that look at uh, minority rights and so on. And we really have a much more inclusive, broad-ranging discussion about how to proceed. Well, if you want to understand our social media economy, and there's no better book than The Hype Machine. It's, it's extremely well-researched. And as uh, Sinan keeps on reminding me, it's not a critique. It offers solutions to uh, the corrosive impact on social media. So everyone should, should read The Hype Machine. Uh, Sinan, you're in Brooklyn in this weird coronavirus year. What else should people be reading? What are you reading at the moment? Well, it's funny. I'm kind of reading in two streams right now. One is uh, along the lines of technology uh, that's related to my work. So I'm reading things like uh, Rebooting AI by Ernest Davis and Gary Marcus, which talks about the notion of a data-driven AI versus a more fundamentally driven AI and what the costs and benefits of each are. Uh, Irresistible by Adam Alter, which describes the habitual kind of uh, addictive mm. nature of our screens. But I'm also in this coronavirus pandemic era, I'm finding myself reading a lot at uh, the intersection of Buddhist thought, kind of meditation and uh, psychology by authors like Mark Epstein, who wrote, who wrote uh, Thoughts Without, Without a Thinker. Uh, and other books like that that go in, you know, going to pieces without falling apart, which is another Mark Epstein book, uh, really thinking about the notion of uh, separating ourselves from the ego uh, and thinking about our consciousness outside of the rat race that's created in the world around us. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
while you're at it. If you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.